Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Over the past few years, with things like the pandemic, the rise in the cost of living, and war in Ukraine, many of us will have experienced some form of overwhelming emotion. But how do we handle these big emotions when they become overbearing? And how do we help our colleagues work through them? Today I'll be talking about just that, handling big emotions, with Molly Westuffy and Liz Fosleen, co-authors of Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Two of the sort of early warning signs that seem to resonate most with people, one is this notion that if I get sick, not really sick, but get a cold or just don't feel that well, that sounds like a relief. I will have an excuse to finally step away from the barrage of emails and messages and DMs and whatever else is coming towards me. And that's a really bad sign when you actually have to be physically ill to grant yourself permission to take a break. In our insightful discussion, we'll be talking about three identified big feelings that people are currently experiencing. Perfectionism, burnout, and uncertainty. And how, as HR and people leaders, we can help ourselves and our workforce be okay when things are not okay. As I was fascinated to learn more about what inspired Molly and Liz to write their book, I started the interview by asking them a little bit about themselves and their inspiration behind researching and writing about dealing with big feelings. So we both wrote a book called No Hard Feelings, which came out in 2019. And that book was really about emotions at work. And then after that book came out, we both went through some difficult times. So um, Liz was dealing with the the death of her father-in-law due to cancer, and I was dealing with chronic health issues and work issues. And so we said, oh, actually, there are some really hard feelings. And we wanted to write a book about what it's like to work through those difficult emotions and share how other people had worked through those those difficult emotions. And so we actually pitched this idea to our editors in January of 2020 before the pandemic. And they said, you know, that sounds like an interesting idea, but it's sort of a niche audience. Like who's going to want to write, read about difficult emotions? And so we said, okay. And then in June of 2020, after the pandemic had started, they came back to us and they said, we will actually buy that book. All that anyone is experiencing right now is, is difficult emotions. So, you know, we and I'll, I'll share just a little bit about ourselves. So my background is in organizational development and learning and development. Um, and so I'm very interested in how emotions affect us in work and life. And Liz can share a little bit more about her background too. Yeah, so my far background is actually in math and economics. Um, so very, I'm always interested in what are the outcomes? <laughs> what happens when you make these changes that help people express emotions more effectively? And then I'm also the head of content and communications at Humu, which we use behavioral science to help teams and leaders improve. And Liz does all of the illustrations in the book as well. So the book's got seven chapters. Each chapter is is dedicated to one of seven identified big feelings. So just to list those for our for our listeners: uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. How did you come to the conclusion that these are the seven big feelings? Uh, and and what have you identified as being the the top three emotions that that people are experiencing? And and Liz, maybe if I come to you first this time. 
Yeah. So Molly and I started with a list of maybe 10 to 12 emotions. And then we, and that those were just ones we had experienced. So as people probably guess, these emotions rarely show up in isolation. So if you're comparing yourself a lot, you feel envy, but you might also feel anger or regret or despair. Uh, And then we surveyed about 1500 people who had read our first book. So all around the world, we tried to get a really big mix of demographics. And these were the seven that seemed to resonate most with people. Um, What was interesting, though, was these emotions. We also asked people if they'd ever heard these emotions described as bad. And like 99.9% of people said yes. So they're very stigmatized. So what we found and what some people have pointed out to us is that one of the chapters, uncertainty, and another, comparison, those aren't necessarily emotions. But when we ask people about anxiety, which is usually underneath uncertainty, and envy, which is the result of comparison, there wasn't a big response. But then when we said comparison, there was this overwhelming outpouring of stories and people say, yes, I engage in that behavior. So it was interesting to see people could identify the situation or the behavior, but somehow we're still a little disconnected from the emotion that it elicited. And I would say over the past six months, the top three burnout has been big. I think that's been consistently big over the past two years uncertainty. It feels like we've hit some kind of new stability and then something else happens. So that's consistent. And then probably we've heard a lot of anger of people, you know, an anger showing up in the same vein as hopelessness as what, like, how do I change things? What do I do? How do I feel better? I've been pushing and pushing now for two and a half years and now I'm just frustrated. When we first did a survey Back in 2020, when we started writing the book of our newsletter audience and our readers, the interesting thing then was that the the emotion that m- the most people said was actually perfectionism, which is you know interesting. I think there's always some sort of level of that, and then I think depending on what's going on in the world and in, in your work life, all of that, these other things can come and go. Um, so that's a big one, and then comparison as well related to perfectionism is another big one that comes up. There seems to be lots of people that suffer from the perfectionism problem. Before we dig into burnout, which I know is really going to resonate with with many of our listeners, and as you said, is the one that's really coming up as a big one at the moment. I'd love to hear some a little bit more about perfectionism and what you found, what are some of the challenges that, that people have, have in that particular area? Yeah, perfectionism is really interesting because some people immediately identify with that word. And Liz was giving examples of how some people are like, yes, that word. And others don't. And I think part of that is that perfectionism, when we think about it, you might think, oh, that shows up in terms of having color-coded folders and keeping your house neat all the time. And that might be true for some people. But for other people, perfectionism is less about that and more about a fear of failure. So a fear that if I don't do this to 110%, that will be considered a failure. So to your point, like it's not okay to do 80%. And that's really black and white thinking, right? That's like there's either good, perfect, or bad, and there's there's nothing in between. Um, We talked to a therapist when we were doing research for the book, and she said a lot of her clients who are perfectionists or show perfectionist tendencies have this feeling that if they stop doing 110%, they will immediately become a couch potato, get fired, stop being valuable to any of their family and friends. It's like, well, it's all going to go to shit after this. Like, and, and, and not realizing that the things that are actually making us successful and, and be loved and appreciated by other people 
are separate from those perfectionist tendencies. And that's what's really hard, I think, to let go of is we feel that the perfectionism is what's really helping us. And in some cases, it might be, you know, putting in extra effort can be helpful in your career. But it also can make us less productive because we're so focused on this one area that we're not seeing the forest from the trees. So, you know, I think we talk about a couple things in the book. One thing is to use the mantra, I am a person who is learning to blank. So I am a person who is learning how to be a parent during a pandemic summer, or I am a person who's learning how to be a manager in a hybrid setting and not expecting ourselves to get it right the first time, giving ourselves some grace. Yeah, because we learn from failure. I think that's the thing. You, we can't always succeed. No one ever succeeds all the time. And I suppose the most important thing is if you do fail to, to try and learn from it, you know, and, that, and obviously you take your own learnings from it, but other people can provide hopefully constructive feedback that will help you do it better next time, perhaps. But, you know, it's no one succeeds all the time, do they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. And I think that, again, that like a lot of times in the book, we talk about well, what's the underlying emotion or need that can help us understand one of these difficult emotions. And so that fear of failure very much sits right below perfectionism. We don't we don't often think about it in the in that terms, but it, it very much is. And so then you can go into, okay, well, like what would be the worst thing that would happen? Or or what it, what am I saying is a failure? Is that actually a failure? Or as you said, is it a, an opportunity to learn? Now, for perfectionists, if they're spending too much time and too much energy on it, I guess, you know, there's a nice link to burnout there. And, you know, you mentioned that burnout is one of the, the top big emotions um, that people are currently experiencing. And I'm not surprised given what's happened over the last two and a half years. Often people associate burnout as overworking themselves uh, and working too many hours. But something that really stood out when reading the, the book was that, and I'm going to quote here, burnout isn't only about the hours you're putting in. It's also a function of the stories you tell yourself and how you approach what you do in the office and at home. What are the other contributing factors associated with burnout besides working long hours and and why do you think that now more than ever people are experiencing or more people are experiencing burnout? Yeah, so by the clinical definition of burnout or the clinical assessment is the Maslach burnout inventory. And what we really love about that is that it breaks burnout into different shades. So like you just said, most of the conversations focus on there's too much on my plate, I'm working too many hours, and that absolutely is a big problem for many people. But there's also feeling ineffective. So you feel like the work that you're putting in isn't actually leading anywhere. And so you can be working nine to five, have great work-life balance, but if it's very routine, you don't feel motivated by the work, you're still going to feel pretty drained at the end of the day. And then another aspect is feeling disengaged. So your work doesn't feel meaningful. You feel disconnected from other people. You're starting to feel cynical. And so it's really important to understand which of these aspects you're experiencing. And you can be experiencing all three. That's actually the clinical definition of burnout is when you have too much to do, you're disconnected, and you feel ineffective. But by pinpointing what's driving those feelings, you're better able to take action to feel better. So in the instance of, let's say you feel disconnected, and this I think is a really overlooked one in the modern world where many of us are still working from home or at least are not in person as much as we used to be. It's really easy to just suddenly drop the social parts of your calendar 
or get on a video call. You've been in back-to-back calls. You just dive right into the agenda. You're exhausted. You're like, I just, I don't want to talk about my weekend. (laughs) I want to get this over with. Um, But it's actually really important then to reach out and, you know, connection at work in particular, it doesn't have to be a two-hour bear your soul to someone. It can be just organizing a quick lunch with people, having a quick catch-up call, starting off team meetings with personal check-ins. Again, just to kind of re-emphasize the fact that everyone is human, building empathy, building those connective bonds. If you feel that your work is no longer meaningful, really sitting down and saying to yourself, why am I doing this? And you know, on your worst days, it might be to pay my rent. And that's fine. (laughs) That can also be a motivator, you know, but hopefully there's something else that you can reconnect with. You can reach out and read through customer testimonials, remind yourself of the impact that your work has, which we often lose sight of again in a remote setting. Your work has a lot of impact on other teams internally and on the world at large. So it's really, again, valuable. And this is a big theme in the book, just to get granular about what you're experiencing and the need behind that emotion so you can start to address it. I mean, I I think that we're so burned out of talking about burnout. So the specifics here really help, as Liz mentioned, like just getting a clear sense of that. And, you know, for me, I experienced burnout after our first book came out. I was working a full-time job and launching our book and doing a bunch of travel and it was just too much. And I got really sick. I got a cold and then it turned into a flu and I, I basically hit a wall. And after you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, I did miss a lot of those early warning signs. I was just go, go, go for a couple months. And it took me a long time to recover. It took like months to recover from it. And I did recover. But I had to ask Liz to do a lot of our events for me, which is sort of a bummer. And, you know, she's very gracious in doing that. So, you know, I share that because I I think that we we don't take it as seriously as as we should and until we have experienced burnout. And I'm curious, David, if, if you've ever experienced burnout or gotten close to burnout. I probably have. And I know certainly there was a time prior to the pandemic when I was probably doing too much travel. I remember one particular example, I'd been in Australia and New Zealand. Now I'm in the UK, so Australia and New Zealand is on the other side of the world to me. I flew back from New Zealand on the I think I left. I think I left New Zealand on the Wednesday. I think I might be wrong. And I landed back in the UK on the Friday morning. I had um, Saturday and Sunday with my family, two young children and, and, and wife. And then on Monday morning, I got a flight to New York. Uh, I was I was I was uh, chairing a conference. And I must admit, I felt pretty burnt out there. I went straight from the, the conference hall uh, to the hotel. Uh, and tried to get to bed and of course with jet lag I couldn't sleep that wasn't great and I think what I you know what I started to see and maybe I saw the danger signs is that my energy levels were severely depleted I started wondering what I was doing so I I was starting to regulate it better and then the pandemic happened so I thought oh I won't be traveling I might actually um, have a bit more time on my hands but then I started to have a bit more of a challenge around. I'd look at my calendar every day and I'd say, oh, I've got like seven or eight hours of calls today and I've got no focus time. So um, that made me much better. I looked at the research and the importance of having focus time to do deep work, but also have a break from the screen. 
Um, so I've got much better at, at blocking time in my agenda, which I probably shouldn't admit on, on, on a podcast with people. <laughs> no, I'm so glad that you you have. I think that's that's really important. And similarly, I know now if I have more than one day of back to back meetings in a week, I, I say I know how I'm going to feel after those days. And that's not being kind to myself. Like that's not, you know, I, I it's very easy to be like, sure, I'll deal with that on Thursday. But Thursday comes around, you're like, why did I do this to myself? And so I say. Similarly, you know, on Sunday, I'll look at my my week and I'll, I'll move meetings back. You know, I'll, I'll say, hey, can we move this back or can I listen to this later? And, you know, I think sometimes we're hesitant to do that, especially if we're more junior in an organization or we feel like, you know, we're needed in all these. But guaranteed the other person to be like, yeah, great. Next week works better for me, too. Thank you. You know, and it's it, it's constant. We can't let up with it. That's, you know, we have to continually take action to prevent burnout. One thing I'll add there, too, we've heard from a lot in particular from HR leaders and managers, that they have a really hard time moving things around on their calendar. And so they're experiencing something we call burnout burnout, which is they are under the same stressors as everyone else. They're facing the same uncertainty. Plus, they're having to help everyone around them manage their burnout. So it's this really, really difficult thing to move through. HR leaders often are also tasked with delivering really hard news, with creating stable policies amid a world that is absolutely not stable anymore. And so I think anyone who's in that profession who's listening, you really do need to be kind for yourself. You have to put your well-being first. That is actually the best thing you can do to show up for the people that you're caring for. But that's something we're hearing a lot is how do I care for myself when I feel like my job is to care for everyone around me and it just feels so tenuous to step away from that. Burnout can impact your self-awareness. So, you know, can you walk through maybe some of the early signs of burnout that people often overlook and possible actions they can take to help nip it in the bud? And maybe those could be you see it yourself, but maybe that could be colleagues or, or, or managers seeing it in other people as well. So one in seeing it in other people, I think the biggest one is just disengagement. So it's very easy to assume that someone maybe is just becoming lazy or they're not interested in the work. And that's actually, as we talked about earlier, a clear sign of burnout, especially if they used to be really motivated and a high performer. So starting a conversation around that and seeing how you can offer them better support on the individual side, two of the sort of early warning signs that seem to resonate most with people, one is this notion that if I get sick, not really sick, but get a cold or just don't feel that well, that sounds like a relief. I will have an excuse to finally step away from the barrage of emails and messages and DMs and whatever else is coming towards me. And that's a really bad sign when you actually have to be physically ill to grant yourself permission to take a break. Similarly, also people describing um, weekends or vacations as opportunities to recover, as opposed to opportunities to enjoy time with your family or, you know, invest in your hobbies and, and things that you love to do outside of work. And then the other one that really resonates with people is this concept of something called revenge bedtime procrastination which is you've had a really busy day. And usually the moment we say this, people, the response is, oh, that's what it is. That's what I've been doing. So you have back-to-back meetings. You know, you have, then you maybe take care of your kids or you go to dinner with friends or you just wanted to, you know, whatever exercise. You go to bed, you're exhausted. You feel yourself falling asleep, but you resist that to get on your phone, to scroll through social media, to read the news, whatever it might be. 
And so you self-sabotage yourself. You don't get the rest you need. And it's a sign that you're just trying to claw back some control over your day because that's the only time that you have for yourself. And that is a really important signal to listen to. And then you can start to build breaks into your day so that it's not at 11 p.m. It's like, oh, finally, I have some me time. That should not be the first time in your day that you feel like you can have time for yourself. So Molly, I'll let you share. I love Molly kind of leaves a magazine in the kitchen. I'll let her share of ways that she's built breaks into her day. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of it is just like physical cues in my house. So I'll leave out like a a magazine on my kitchen counter to be like, hey, as you're walking through, like get off your phone, sit down for a second, read a magazine for a few minutes. Um, You know, lots of people take walks and all that, but that's like an easy one for me. And, you know, we we talk a little bit in the book about about garbage time and downtime. And garbage time is a phrase we really like because it's just so catchy. But like you have to build in time for that during your day. And we feel bad about that sometimes. It's like, oh, should I really be reading celebrity news at, you know, noon? Yes, I should be because like <laughs> the rest of the day I'm doing really intensive, you know, brain heavy work. And this is, you know, my my brain needs a chance to recover. So just letting go of that guilt around some of these things. Well, it helps improve, supports well-being and maybe helps mitigate against burnout. But it also having breaks actually improves your productivity as well. So you're not you're you're treating yourself better, but you're also treating your colleagues or customers, whoever that you're that you're going to be working with in the afternoon um, as well. And it's, it's it's really interesting. I mean, there's there's enough data out there. There's enough research that externally available that talks about the importance of focus time, of breaks, of not spending nine hours on consecutive Zoom or Teams calls. Um, you know, and and certainly we look at some of the you know. At Insight Two Two Two, the company I work with, you know, we, we we work with people analytics teams and a lot and a lot and a lot of big companies, um, as I'm sure you do, Liz, actually in, in your work as well. And and it's it's amazing how much of the work now is focused on on understanding well being within the organisation, trying to look at maybe people at risk of burnout because you know if you look look at some of their network data, you look at some of the what people are self-reporting in surveys, you can start to see that start to see some of those early warning signals, perhaps, and try and take organisational measures to 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 prevent them. Um, you know, and and maybe we're fortunate in some ways that we we live in a world where we we are able to look at some of this data now. But looking at it, one thing, taking action on it is another. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I would also. Even outside of data, it's interesting. So one of the questions that um, we sometimes ask or that I just sometimes ask people is, what situations, in what situations do you feel that you're at your best and who are you when you're at your best? And people have surprisingly accurate answers. So it's usually I've slept well. I don't have meetings all day. And when I'm at my best, I'm generous. When someone emails me a request, I don't immediately have a rage attack because there's 15 other things on my to-do list. I actually think, oh, that's interesting. How could I, you know, that's a good suggestion or I see why you might be asking me this. Um, And so I think that's a nice exercise for anyone listening to do as well is when am I at my best and who am I when I'm at my best? And hopefully the when helps you figure out maybe you do need to move things around in your schedule. And the who is that motivational piece of, oh yeah, I forgot that I could be this person that isn't falling apart at like a, I remember last year when I did, I hadn't even realized I was burnt out and my husband asked me to send him a calendar invite for a dinner we had with friends and I burst into tears. And that was a, that was just like, 
wow, I cannot one little request for me just push me over the edge because it just felt like the last, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of there's just too much to do. I can't even take the 30 seconds to do this. Um, so I think, yeah, reminding ourselves, we don't want to be in that place. That's not who we are at our best. So let's try to get back to that. Yeah, then that, that's a, a great warning signal when something that probably is quite small and won't take long, if that gives you stress, you know, emotion, then you probably need a rest, don't you? In just a few moments, I'll be continuing my interview with Molly West Duffy and Liz Fosleen on how to help your teams deal with big feelings. But before we go back, let me take this short break as an opportunity to talk to you about the sponsors of this season's podcast. ChartHop is transforming the way companies manage and support their people. Because like a giant alien robot shifting into a semi-truck, when it comes to how you view your people, there's more than meets the eye. Delivering a fresh take on people analytics that's out of this world, ChartHop seamlessly consolidates and visualizes disparate sources of people data into one powerful platform, creating more informed, empowered, and connected organizations. From executives to individual contributors, to every employee in between, ChartHop is designed for everyone in the organization. Head to charthop.com forward slash digital HR to learn how HR leaders are leveraging ChartHop. That's charthop.com forward slash digital HR. Welcome back to my conversation with Molly West Duffy and Liz Fosleen. Headphones on and sound up as we take a closer look into how people leaders can help teams avoid burnout, as well as create a culture of stability in a world full of uncertainty. So, so burnout has has been, as we've talked about, you know, to, found to have a detrimental effect on on efficiency, productivity, engagement, and well being of employees. You know, what advice could you give our listeners today to help their teams find balance at work and, and ultimately avoid burnout? A lot of people listening to uh, this podcast, in fact, most of it will be working in HR. So I guess it's for their own teams, but also how they can help the organization, I guess, to try and avoid burnout. One of the things is training managers on how to have check-in conversations about burnout and help their employees prioritize their work. So something like, are there any blockers that you're facing? You know, where do you need help prioritizing? Where are you feeling overwhelmed? So rather than saying something like general, like, you know, where do you need help or what's on your mind, asking some really specific questions that get at burnout and knowing that this can change week to week. So you might have some employees who suddenly have a family member that they had to take care of or their kids are now out of school for summer. And so now they're they're being pushed into burnout, whereas last week they were totally fine. So it does change, continuing to check in. And then training managers on how to say to people, I would like for you to share with me all the things that you're working on so that I can help you prioritize. I know that you have a lot on your plate. Let's talk about what we can move off of your plate or what we can push down on your plate. Because that's often when we hear how employees struggle. It's like, I'm so overwhelmed. I feel like I have way too much to do, but all of it feels important. And as a manager, you want your people to be working on the most important things. Um, And so this is mutually beneficial to both parties. So giving specific training around that. 
I think those are good ones. I would also say encouraging managers and leaders to model behavior that helps people invest in their well-being. So often we will get questions from both HR leaders and leaders in other departments saying, you know, we've looked at the data. No one on my team is taking vacation. I know that this is important. How do I encourage them to take a day off? And then we say, well, when was the last time you took a day off and really took the day off? Not PTO equals pretend time off where you're still emailing and, you know, active across all platforms. And the answer is usually silence. And so I think it's, it's, that is ultimately what's going to create the psychological safety for people to feel better and to feel safe taking the breaks they need is if they see their leaders modeling that. There was a pretty famous study that Microsoft did when they started to understand what was driving, you know, they, they found, I think they managed to quantify that every time a manager sent an email at the weekend, it caused each member of, that, of their team who was in, a recipient of that email 20 minutes of work. And they felt they had to do it at the weekend, not everyone, obviously, but but a lot of them felt they had to do it at the weekend because they were receiving it. The uh, and that just they use that insight to change behaviour, and ultimately that's what it's about, isn't it? Can you use the, the the data from some of the the examples that you gave there, where you can bring data to to the conversation, and then actually getting that behaviour change as well? So as a manager, you think, oh, I'm worried about my team. But if I don't actually, uh, uh, you know, model that behavior myself, then the team aren't going to. They're, they're, it's going to be a downward spiral. So a really, really important point there. One one thing related to that, too, what you just said about clarifying response time expectations for people responding on evenings and weekends. So we recommend teams have a kickoff meeting to talk about how they want to work together. So how do we want to communicate? What are the response time expectations? How do we want to give feedback? What are our individual goals? All of that. This is something when I worked at the global design firm, IDEO, we did and we called them flights. So we had a pre-flight, mid-flight and, and post-flight. And the pre-flight, we said, okay, what are the expectations? And and we were doing client work. And so we were serving clients. So it was really important to say, you know, what is expected? And, you know, I think so often, you know, it's like, oh, I'm a manager. I'm sending an email on a weekend. Ugh, it's just easier to get this out. And we recommend using the schedule send feature, but not everyone remembers to do that on the weekend. But even if you do send that, like just saying, either beforehand as a team, I'm going to I'm gonna be responding to things at all hours. That does not mean that you need to be or putting it actually in the subject, you know, like, hey, I'm sending this now. You don't need to respond to this until Monday. Like, whatever it is, just making that explicit can be really helpful. So burnout was one big emotion that's causing problems at the moment. Not surprisingly, uncertainty was another top big feeling that people were struggling with. How can leaders help their team alleviate the negative feelings of uncertainty and, and try and create a sense of certainty and, and stability? Yeah, so I think two great tips for leaders. One is um, to rally the team around a short-term mission. So when things feel very uncertain, it's just really important that people still have some semblance of certainty. And so one thing to do is like three months is usually a reasonable timeline. Even if things change dramatically, you can still, there's some wiggle room within that. And that can be anything, right? It could be a cultural mission. So over the next three months, we're going to try to really reconnect as a team. Um, we're going to try to deliver this amazing customer experience, but it gives people something concrete to focus on and then allows them, to, again, to feel some kind of control and focus on that. The other actually comes from NASA. So we interviewed a woman, an organizational designer who'd worked with teams there. 
And even at NASA, where getting it right is extremely important, they don't make plans. They make what they call plans from which we'll deviate. And what's really nice about that is it sets this expectation that things are going to shift. So I think uncertainty feels particularly bad when we get too attached to a very specific outcome. And so a plan from which we'll deviate allows you to figure out what are the two to three most likely outcomes or what paths forward. And let's put some concrete steps in place. And what's nice about it is, again, it allows you to focus on an end goal, work towards it, work together as a team to think through that scenario, but also leaves you open if things do change, you've thought through alternate scenarios and it's not so startling. And so I think that is a nice grounding exercise that also, again, allows you to have more adaptability down the road because you've set the right expectations for yourself and your team. So you can do this as an individual, you can do this as a group, but creating a plan from which we'll deviate is a great practice. One piece of of research that I think you and your your audience will really like, David, is there was a psychology study that looked at giving people um, electric shocks and they said, okay, one group, you're going to have a 99% chance of getting an electric shock. And the other group, they said, you're going to have a 1% chance of getting an electric shock. It was a painful but safe shock. And the two groups were willing to pay about the same amount of money to avoid getting the shock, even though the chance, the actual chance of them getting the shock was was greatly different. And so I think what that shows is any amount of uncertainty is hard for us. And in some cases, it would just be easier if they were like, you're going to get an electric shock. You'd be like, great, okay, I can prepare myself for that. But what that says about us is that we're, we're pretty bad at taking the actual chance and translating that into the amount of anxiety that we should feel. So if there's even a small chance, we still might feel a large amount of anxiety about something. And are we going to talk a little bit, you know, about um, uncertainty? And again, I'll, I'll probably come back to how managers can help their teams with uncertainty. I guess the, the point that you made earlier about one-to-ones are really important. They're really important around understanding uncertainty, aren't they? Because different people will react to uncertainty in different ways. We think of the pandemic, you know, if you're a caregiver, for example, you had a real different impact of the pandemic to, you know, someone that maybe wasn't a caregiver, didn't have maybe young children or, or, you know, elderly relatives living with them at the time. Um, So as a manager, it's important to understand how uncertainty is, is impacting people differently within your team, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and we actually have a couple of assessments on our, our website. And our website is Liz and Molly, Molly with an IE.com. Um, and one of them is your uncertainty tolerance <laughs> tendencies. So how much can you tolerate uncertainty? And this does change. So the research shows that we have much greater tolerance for uncertainty earlier in our lives. In our 20s, we we really want, you know, a lot of change and excitement. And then over time we want less of it. Um and so that can change and it can also change, you know, based on the setting and, and all of that. But I think understanding that there are people who are your colleagues who are going to want everything to be completely certain and how do you help them versus people who are a little more cool with having an open-ended, you know, and I think that being said, all of us in the past two years have undergone like way too much uncertainty. Like I don't think anyone feels like they're really thriving. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. 
It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Molly West Duffy and Liz Fosleen. In this final section of the podcast, we discuss the importance of communication in supporting the well-being of hybrid teams and why it's okay to communicate your big feelings with your team. One of the big topics, maybe the biggest topic in the world of work at the moment is is hybrid. You know, what tips do you have for for listeners and again remembering that most of the people listening are, are in the HR function to help them better manage their hybrid teams? And, you know, is there anything people should stop doing, for example? Yeah, I think when it comes to having people come back into the office, so research at Humu that we've conducted actually shows that a hybrid model is best for employee performance and happiness. And that's because having some time at home allows you to build flexibility into your calendar. You can you know, go to the grocery store if you need to pick up, go to the mailbox or post office. Um, but then when you're in person, it's really valuable to have those connections, build your relationships at work. It's much easier to learn by observing other people to develop a mentorship relationship. So hybrid is actually, it is done well, the best of both worlds, but it's hard to get right because there's all these biases that can creep in when we're not together in person. So a couple of things. The first is really being intentional about in-person time. So there's no benefit to being in the office together if everyone is just sitting at their desk doing work that they could be doing at home. So relaxing a little bit of the maybe intense focus on productivity when you're in person and encouraging people go to lunch together, have brainstorms. I think giving managers a list of things they should prioritize when people are in the office. And again, it's all these interpersonal things. So difficult conversations, performance related conversations, team bonding exercises, getting lunch together, standing around the water cooler. That's what you should focus on in person and then leave sort of the heads down work for at home days Another piece is really to train managers to combat proximity bias. And so that is this out of sight, out of mind. Um, You might have a team where some people are in the office and some cannot come into the office as much. And so one tip to give managers is when you're thinking about there's a new assignment or you want to offer someone a learning opportunity, do not go with the first person that pops into your head. That's probably going to be the person sitting across from you that you looked up and you saw them and boom, they're in your head. And so instead saying, actually look at a list of your entire team and go through that list and think who on this list is the best person to get this growth opportunity? Who have I not offered a chance to learn or to take on a new project recently? And that's a very tactical way to combat proximity bias. So I think one, just really understanding that hybrid is a very effective way of working. It just takes more intentionality. And then giving managers and leaders the skills and the tools that they need to make sure that they're prioritizing the right things, that they're aware of the biases that can creep up. Um, I think hybrid 
done with a very hands-off approach probably will fail because you will have all these biases creep in. People won't feel included. They won't know. They won't. They'll also come into the office and then be resentful that they're in the office because they're doing the exact same thing they were doing from home, except now they had to commute two hours to do it. So I think one way to pull people back is again, to make the office experience enjoyable and really emphasize the benefit of having that time. As leaders, we tend to feel that we have to be perceived as perfect in the sense that we don't express big feelings and try and have our emotions under control. But obviously, in reality, that, that's that's not the case. We're not robots, um, leaders, um, and, and and we're still susceptible to, to these oversized feelings. You know, how can leaders go about communicating their feelings with their teams without appearing emotionally weak? Yeah, so we talk about this in the in our first book, No Hard Feelings, and we really encourage leaders to practice something called selective vulnerability. So this is, as a leader, you do have to walk this line between sharing, which is necessary for building trust, for becoming a leader others want to follow, but you also can't overshare, which undermines your authority. So example of this is if you lose a big customer, if you say nothing, when you're silent, people will assume the worst. They think you're a robot, that you're not human, you have no reaction, and they're not going to trust you. You also can't come in the next day and start sobbing and say, I didn't sleep at all. I don't know where our team is going. This is the worst thing to ever happen. No one, like that's, people are also going to look for a different job immediately. Um, so this, this balance is what we call selective vulnerability, and it's pairing a moment of openness So you're talking about your emotions without becoming emotionally leaky, and then you're following it up with a path forward. So in the instance of losing a big customer, it's coming into the meeting and addressing what everyone knows happened. So you say, hey, I'm I'm not trying to sweep this under the rug. We lost this customer. This is not good. Um, I'm definitely feeling it. I know it's been really disappointing and frustrating. If you have questions or concerns, we can talk about those now. You can also have, let people know they can come to you in one-on-ones. You can say you're going to schedule a debrief to see what happened. Just give them a sense of when and where they can raise concerns and ask questions. And then the path forward. So here's what I plan to do over the next three months to make sure this doesn't happen again, to make sure that we get to a better place. And here's what I need from you. And what's nice about that is you have acknowledged the emotions in the room, made people feel like you are understanding of what's happening, but you've also shown that you have it together enough as a leader to figure out what to do next. So you will guide people through this challenging time. Um, and that's that's kind of the formula that we always recommend. The other thing I'd say is, as a leader, you are going to have bad days, potentially more bad days than individual contributors because you have so much more information about the organization and people are coming to you with so many different issues. And so it's not about never having a bad day. It's just about flagging that for people so you don't cause unnecessary anxiety. So one example, um, we interviewed Kim Malone-Scott, who was a manager at Google, wrote Radical Candor. We really love her work. And she thought that she was this cool and calm and collected leader until one day someone on her team came up to her and said, I just want to let you know that the team knows what kind of day we're going to have by your mood when you walk in the door. And that for her was a startling moment of, oh, like, I guess these bad days I have not been hiding (laughs) as well as I thought. And so what she started to do is if she noticed that she was you know, exhausted or frustrated, she would just say as she entered a meeting, it's been a day, 
I just want you to know if I seem a little distracted, it has nothing to do with you. And I'm really going to try to be present. So she's not going into any detail, right? She's not oversharing, but she is making sure that if the person picks up on something, they don't immediately assume they did something wrong and that turns into an anxiety spiral for the rest of the day. So if you haven't slept, if you're in back-to-back meetings and it's 4 p.m., just flagging like, been in back-to-back meetings, it's been a long day, I'm excited for this meeting, but if I seem a little you know, tired, it has nothing to do with you or the work that we're talking about. Again, a nice way of practicing selective vulnerability. Yeah, very good. Good advice. Molly, anything anything to add from, from, from you on that point? I think in, in the context of HR leaders, this is even more complicated because you really have to monitor <laughs> um, what emotions you share um, and you have to be a, an extreme model of this. So I think it goes back to what Liz was saying. You know, we're hearing burnout, burnout. And, you know, there's, there's something called emotional labor, which is when we have to surface act and we can't show our true emotions. This often comes up in customer service context where you have to be, you know, happy and positive all the time. But it also comes up for HR leaders where you are seeing a lot of things that are difficult and you have to maintain professionalism and objectivity. So I think it's it's about finding people who you can go to. So I know an HR leader who she will go to her director of her office when she's really feeling stressed and like, you know, I just need somebody to talk to about this, to share my my true emotions about this, because I, I can't really show any of them. That wouldn't be professional. But I, I do think as HR leaders, you can do some of what Liz said around, you know, when we're in the middle of still a pandemic, still a lot of global tough events happening. As an HR leader, it's still appropriate for you to say, like, you know, I'm I'm feeling this too. You know, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety around this, and like I, you know, having some empathy and, and sharing that you're this is on your mind as well is is appropriate, and maybe will even make you feel better. We spoke about burnout and uncertainty today, but there are another five big emotions that we we sort of listed earlier that people are struggling with. If there's one piece of advice that you can give to listeners today. What what would it be? I can start. And I think that just on this last topic of being selectively vulnerable, I think that this this takes practice. And it's not like you're going to be immediately comfortable. But the more that you do open up as a leader and get positive feedback about that, the more you'll feel comfortable doing that. So when I was earlier in my career, I had a moment where I was feeling I was leading a project and I was like up until 2 a.m. one night, you know, and I was I was like, should I share that I was, you know, thinking about this? And I came in the next day and I said, I just want you all to know that I care so much about this project. And I was up at 2 a.m. thinking about it. And, you know, I need you all as my fellow leaders to lean in a little bit here. And I felt scared saying that, but it ended up being the moment in the project where my team and my clients were like, we knew that you were really on board and we felt that you were really invested. And that then helped me feel like, okay, I can share a little bit more moving forward. And and Liz? Yeah, I think it's just being okay with having a bad day and having a quote unquote negative emotion. So emotions actually aren't good or bad. They are just the responses to signals that we're taking in. And there's a lot to be learned from them. And there's also research that shows when we feel bad, We actually feel worse when we make ourselves feel bad for feeling bad. So I think this often happens. We feel angry or we're just going through a rough time and then we self-berate. So we say, oh, I should just be able to get up and do all this. I shouldn't feel this horrible. Um, And in general, it's much better just to sit with it and say like, this is how I feel in this moment. 
what is the need behind this emotion? Can I take action on it? And if not, you know, I'm just going to kind of get through the day and give myself some grace, especially with the last two years that we've had. Um, it is absolutely normal. Like if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel frustrated, it's because the conditions that we're existing in are overwhelming and frustrated. And so I think giving yourself permission to sit with those emotions, learn from them, um, is, is the fastest path to actually feeling better rather than again, going back to perfectionism, putting this, like, I should be feeling good all the time. That's just not a reasonable expectation. Now we're going to move to the question we're asking everyone on this on this particular series, and and I think you'll both have a really interesting take on this. What do you think the role of ethics is in HR? People who lead HR definitely have a responsibility to think about ethics, but I I don't think that it should be entirely on them, uh, and that's sort of the theme here. Like they're doing a lot, and to ask them to be the the sole keeper of the organization's ethics, maybe there could be some other leaders who help out with that. Yeah, HR is becoming much more data backed. So we've even talked about in this episode all the data that's that's accessible because we're doing so much online. You can look at calendar data, network analysis. Uh, and I think that there's a huge responsibility that comes with that too. So making sure that as you're going through the data as much as possible, you're looking at it at an aggregate level. So you're not violating the expectation of privacy that employees have. Um, it's not actually helpful. <laughs> you know, like if there's many examples of when you really hone in on a specific metric, people are going to change their behavior to make sure that that metric looks good to someone who's monitoring it. So if it's computer usage, there's lots of videos online of people like putting their mouse on a little robot or like on the Roomba vacuum cleaner so that there's constantly motion, but they're not actually at their computer. So I think really, as you're going through data, reminding yourself, like, you know, let's try not to look at this so much at the individual level. And are we really looking at this for a good purpose? Is it in the interest of employees' well-being? Um, because, yeah, I think there's a real danger to having so much data. Uh, and so that's, to me, where like ethics really, really is going to come into play even more so over the coming years. Please can each of you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, and of, of course, find out more and purchase your, your book. Um, Molly, I'll come to you first. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. And we had a great time. You can find us at Liz and Molly. Again, it's Liz and Molly with an IE.com. And we are on Instagram, same thing, and Twitter at Liz and Molly. And I'll hand it over to Liz. Yep. And then the books you can buy anywhere books are sold. No Hard Feelings and Big Feelings is the latest one. Liz and Molly, thank you very much for your time. And uh, hopefully at some point, now that travel's starting to come back, we'll, we'll, our paths will cross somewhere, uh, maybe a conference uh, in the US or in Europe in the, in the, in the coming, uh, coming year or so. Fantastic. Wouldn't love yeah. that. Thanks so much again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. My thanks again to Molly Westuffy and Liz Fosleen for joining us today. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter 
by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week with an interesting discussion with Emily Connery and Ivory Johnson from this season's sponsors Charthop and how to successfully maintain employee well-being and diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging amidst mass growth in such an incredibly short amount of time. Until then, stay safe, stay well and take care. <laughs>